Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, the podcast for credit market nerds and anyone else interested in the world of corporate debt. I'm Will Cager-Smith and this week I'm delighted to be teaming up with an old podcast partner in crime. So I'm going to dive right into it and say welcome, James. Hey, Will. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to be back in a podcast studio with you. I think it's been about six years, something like that. Whatever it is, it's way too long. So before we dive in, as this is your Cloud9Fin debut, do you want to just briefly introduce yourself? Sure. I've been um, practicing law since uh, 2002. I started out at law firms, uh, reading uh, and, and doing high yield and, and leverage loan deals. Uh, I've been in this space since 2015. Uh, so now my law practice consists of uh, reading indentures and credit agreements so that you don't have to. Indeed. So basically, when it comes to debt covenants, you've seen some stuff in your time. I've seen a couple of things. Right. Which brings me to today's topic, which is the loan deal that Focus Financial just did and the way they did it. Interesting one. Yeah, it's interesting to see a deal that looks like a change of control, but apparently is not. Right. So... I'm going to set the scene here first. Um, Focus Financial is a conglomerate of wealth management firms. It's publicly listed, trades on the NASDAQ. And recently, it was announced that Clayton, DeBillier and Rice was going to take the company private by buying a 75% equity stake with the help of Stonepoint, which is already a big holder of the company's stock, but is upping its stake to 25%. And normally in this kind of situation, when a company gets a new majority owner, that would count as a change in control for the company's debt, meaning the company needs to refinance that debt, buy out existing lenders and replace it with new loans or bonds. But in this situation, Focus left all of its existing term loans alone. That's like $2.5 billion of debt. And instead of refinancing that debt, the company isn't touching it. And that means all the company is raising to fund this $7 billion LBO by CDNR and Stonepoint is a relatively small, compared to the enterprise value, $500 million incremental loan. So can you explain to me how are they doing that? Yeah, essentially by splitting the economics from the voting power. Under the credit agreement, it is not a change of control as long as Stonepoint still has the ability to uh, designate a majority of the board of directors. Mm. So apparently they're going to have some sort of supermajority voting stock or something like that, or uh, or um, or CDNR will have non-voting stock. I'm not sure how they're going to technically do it, but it's quite clear that that's the uh, the that's what they're hanging their hat on this this language in the credit agreement that says as long as Stonepoint has a majority of the of the board, then it's not a change of control. Right. Okay. So CDNR is becoming the majority equity owner, but it doesn't control the board, and that's how they're avoiding triggering a change of control in the debt, which is good for CDNR and Focus because the and Stonepoint as well, because the deal gets funded more cheaply. Obviously, rates have risen a lot. And if I have to refinance the entire debt stack at today's rates, my interest costs are going to massively increase. Not to mention, I'm going to have to pay bigger fees to whichever bank runs the deal. It all makes sense. But basically, it, it's weird. This leaves CDNR as the majority equity owner of a company whose board it does not control, which is not just odd. It's it's kind of nuts, right? Like if I were CDNR in this situation, I would probably not be okay with that. It certainly raises a lot of questions. Here's some of the things that I would expect CDNR to want to have to say in. For example, um, who uh, who declares dividends? Can Stone Point do that entirely by themselves? Can they cut the dividend? Um, 
who approves mergers or sales of major assets? Can StonePoint do that unilaterally? Uh, what about the issuance of additional equity? Things like that. Um, really importantly, who gets to choose the CEO? Um, is it StonePoint um, just by themselves, or can they do it with with just their majority of the of the board? I would think that that normally you would be able to do that. Uh, finally. Um, can the board block the sale of CDR shares or StonePoint shares uh, without any shareholder approval? So those are the things that I would like, uh, if I were a CDNR, I certainly want to have a say in. Um, and uh, the implication here is by not having, uh, you know, a majority of the board, um, they don't have a say in those in those transactions. Right. So, yeah, like you point out, then the question is, let's imagine. I am a sponsor, I buy a majority equity stake in a company, but I don't take control of the board. And because of the way my credit agreement is written, that allows me to not repay existing lenders. I like that because it allows me to finance the deal more cheaply, but I don't like that because I'm not controlling the company I literally own, which leads to a lot of the potential outcomes that you just described, which by the way, might also be a potentially a breach of my fiduciary duty to the investors whose money I use to buy the company. So maybe I make a side agreement with whoever does control the board that effectively gives me board control, even though nominally I don't have board control, right? So let's imagine that happens. That's kind of having it both ways, right? Yeah, exactly. So I wonder, or one would naturally wonder if there is a shareholders agreement whatever it's called, an operating agreement, shareholders agreement, um, that in substance gives uh, each shareholder veto power over certain major transactions. Uh, does CDNR have blocking rights over any of those uh, those uh, things I just mentioned just now? Um, and uh, and if they do, you wonder if the what power the board actually has. Mm -hmm. If the board of directors doesn't have the power to do X, Y, and Z, what are they directing at all? Uh, if they're governed, if they're ultimately answerable to answering to a super board consisting of both um, both sponsors, uh, is it a board at all? So, yeah. so query whether there's a way to argue under the credit agreement, um, assuming those arrangements are in place, um, that they don't control, they don't actually control a majority of the board by virtue of the fact that the shareholders are uh, have uh, blocking rights over virtually everything. Uh -huh. And you know, given all of all of this. And the the fact that it's it's kind of at odds with the the acquisition of majority control, and you know the the fact that they've somehow circumvented the change of control. Um, we're talking about ways in which the direction of the company could be altered, which is one of the reasons that a change of control in the debt exists. Right, I lend money to a company under a certain ownership structure. I do my analysis based on those assumptions, that person or entity owning the company in the direction they're going to take it in. Then someone else comes along, buys the company, they potentially take it in a very different direction. The reason a change of control exists, or one of the reasons, is so that I get the option as a lender to sell out at par to get an exit um, if I don't like the direction the company is going in. So could there be grounds for lenders to take legal action because um, for not being given a chance to a chance to redeem? Oh, certainly there's uh, certainly, you know, one of the um, principles of contract construction is that the documents need to be construed considering the reasonable expectations of the parties. Mm. So, if if all you need to do to get around this change of control trigger is to effectively put a super board on top of the board. Um, 
was it reasonable for the lenders to expect that to happen and and essentially never have a change of control mm. so if it you know so no, certainly you could you could sue uh now um you could sue later uh if it isn't in fact a change of control it's going to be an ongoing change of control mm -hmm. um it's not going to you know there's no really way real way to cure that um uh also it's also conditioned to any borrowing under the revolver that there not be in a, be a default so but i'm not i'm not suggesting at all that that it is that it is not a change of control or that it is a change of control that's a material issue of fact you'd have to read all those documents that i assume exist and and make a determination as to uh whether uh, the board of directors has uh, much power at all right that makes total sense but in this case it's actually probably not worth it right now at least for lenders to take action because the existing loans are trading very close to par so the secondary market is offering those lenders a chance to exit the debt without taking too much of a loss i mean you know depending on, on where they bought it of course so why would they kick up a fuss and sue for the sake of a couple of basis points i mean we, we've spoken to some sources out of the market that that made that that point very clear it's it's just not worth kind of kicking the hornet's nest in this situation well i don't have an opinion on whether they should sue that's up to, entirely up to them um i'm i'm just uh i'm just saying the the transaction does raise some red flags doesn't it so if you wanted to have a look at that documentation um that, that governs the relationship between the two shareholders uh, i think you'd have a right to it if you sued mm -hmm. because it would come out in discovery sure right Okay. And and if if this artifice is all you need to to avoid a change of control in any deal, then a lot of deals are are at risk of having this happen as well. I, I think they pointed out one difference, one nuance in the language, in the change of control direction uh, definition, which is just exactly what I what I spelled out to you. In addition to the normal securities law language about beneficial ownership and this and that, um, it's crystal clear that even outside of the securities laws definitions. As long as they hold a, a majority of the right to elect the majority of the board, then it's not a change in control. Mm -hmm. So really, there's two hurdles you have to get over as a lender. Number one, seeing through that artifice of, of the board. Um, and number two, then uh, attributing beneficial ownership of uh, the Stone Point shares to uh, CDNR. Right. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, just because this maneuver doesn't really hugely damage investors in this situation... That doesn't mean it might not show up in similar situations in the future with other companies that have this kind of language in their docs, right? True. Now, an awful lot of lawyers have looked at this deal, right, um, and come to, all come apparently come to the conclusion that it's not problematic. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure everybody there is aware of um, of uh, you know applicable precedent um, and and the securities laws and all that stuff. I'm sure they're they're very aware of it and have done their best to uh, you know. To structure this in a way that doesn't run afoul of, of those. Nevertheless, I'd be I'd still be interested in seeing those documents. Uh -huh. um, but uh, and the, there is actually, you know, speaking of precedent, there is actually, uh, or there was a case that has some echoes of this um, a few years ago, right? There was a case back in 2015 um, in the esteemed uh, Court of Chancery of the State of Delaware uh, uh, re regarding um, uh, the merger of uh, Foresight Energy and Murray Energy. Okay. You know, they say uh, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. Um, this transaction focus, in my opinion, rhymes a lot with Foresight Energy. I mean, Murray Energy was going to buy up Foresight 
and uh, and there are actually two deals: the original deal and the amended deal. The original deal was going to be regular way, um, but then they couldn't come up with with the financing for the the acquisition, so they decided to keep an indenture in place. So to avoid the put, they did exactly what it appears that Focus is doing here, which is to say, um, uh, the acquirer purchased a majority of the economics, but a minority of the vote. Mm-hmm. In that tra- in that tra- uh, deal, it did not go very well for the company. They lost. For, for Murray Energy. For Murray Energy. Right. Uh, they lost. The court found that it was a change of control. And the case is certainly worth reading for, for anybody who's interested in these, these issues. It's easy to find. Um, but, you know, it, it's really that particular case, it's really kind of a deep dive into, into securities laws, talking about uh, beneficial ownership, shared investment power, anti-evasion rules under the uh, securities laws, um, and, and like that. So, but very interesting read. Um, but I, I, I suspect, uh, like most things, it comes down to the specific facts and circumstances of, of those documents, which are uh, which govern relations between the, the shareholders, but which are not public. Uh-huh. You might even say Focus had some, some foresight into the potential issues of this deal. Uh, so you beat me to it. <laughs> All right. Well, we should wrap it up there for this week, but um, I'm sure we'll be writing more about this in the future. So thanks for talking me through it. My pleasure. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, if you like this episode, please share it and let us know if you have any feedback. You can email us on team at ninefin.com. Don't forget to check in next week with my London colleagues for the latest on European markets. We'll be back the week after that in the US. So until then, as always, take care.